good news is that you've cleaned yourself up. You're starting to notice the changes. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. The bad news is if you go back to the way you eat. From our studios in Malibu, California. You'll notice really amazing changes in your body as a result of those bites of food that you've eaten. Welcome, it's host Brad Kearns back in the studio in Malibu with Mark Sisson after a whirlwind of some fun, different sort of podcasts. We're back with the questions piling up, Mark. Uh, we've been promising to answer questions for a couple of podcasts now. We never get around to it, so that's all we're doing today is questions. Here's a fun one that we talked about a bit off the air coming from me, the former washed-up now professional triathlete, but back in the day we were remembering that when you were coaching us, we were complaining about not being able to recover from this standard weekly uh, training schedule where we had our hard run on Tuesday and our long ride on Friday and our long run on Sunday. And you just get into this cycle where you're constantly stressed by the next upcoming workout. And then you suggested one time, hey, why don't you just stack up doing the long, hard run on Tuesday and then the very next day do the long, hard bike ride in the mountains? And it seemed daunting at the time. But it kind of worked out in, in, in a really um, interesting way. Can you describe what your thought process was and why the body might benefit from stacking up hard workouts rather than spacing them as is commonly believed to be the way to go? Yeah, we spaced them out tr- trying to allow for full recovery between each of the workouts. But full recovery never really happens when you are at that elite level and you're you're training that hard all the time. So even if you you know take a day or a day and a half or maybe even two days between hard workouts – and you're still doing something on the days in between because you're because you're a pro and you're you know you can't just sit around and do nothing. Um, it seemed that you guys were never fully recovered. So I thought, well, we sort of have to do the work. We have to do these breakthrough workouts. We have to actually put some of the miles in. Why don't we gang them? Why don't we stack them one day after another and then allow three days recovery after? And that seemed to it, it was an interesting experiment that worked quite well for you guys. So we would do a long, hard ride on a Wednesday, a long, hard run on a Thursday, and then maybe take three days of just really easy, easy. And I I remember you telling me how you'd feel it two days later or three days later. You'd really feel the impact, you know, sort of not just having done the work, but the hormonal residual effects lasting for a few days later. And that's really your body kind of repairing itself, recovering, and um, using the resources to get ready for the next challenge. But um, always drives home the message that training at the elite level is really not so much about how often and how hard you work, but how much, how much recovery you get between the workouts that ultimately is your goal. Your goal is to recover to get better, not to beat yourself up by repeated hard workouts. So that was just one little strategy that we'd say, okay, let's go two days in a row hard and then take three days off. Yeah, and what's going on during that period of whatever it is, 48 hours, with that stress hormone spiking, let's say from the first workout, but they're still spiked up the next morning. So to my great surprise, I'd wake up the next day and I wouldn't feel so bad and I'd be able to get on my bike and actually feel great with the legs feeling pumped, perhaps because I pushed myself so hard and got myself into a sort of a fight or flight trigger the day before. Absolutely. And what's interesting is you talk to a lot of people who run a marathon and they will tell you if they had a great marathon the next day they felt like going out and running. You know, they might have been sore, they might have, you know, had some had some muscle stiffness, but typically one of the dangers of running a really good marathon, you know, as a as a race and competing in a, in a in an event and having a really good time, maybe a personal best, is that you're so jazzed 
the next day that you feel like going out and it and you have to really be very careful not to to do that because those hormones are still sort of coursing through your body that cortisol is still high enough that you're on that fight or flight high uh, and then of course you're an emotional high from having done well that that prior day so there is the danger that people will overtrain the week immediately after a hard, a really good performance, because they're so, they're so in not just the headspace of having done it, but they're in the the first couple of days they're in that hormonal space. Well, we tapped into that, uh, knowing that that phenomenon occurs. We tapped into that in the training, doing two days in a row, being careful not to do three days in a row or four days in a row. And then, if you can tap into that kind of knowledge, it really kind of manifests itself in that ability to work hard and and do the work when you do the work, but then rest appropriately to recover from that work. Yeah, speaking of emotional high, if if old-time triathlete Andrew McNaughton's listening, which he probably is, I remember when he won his first race at Benelli Park and he was so thrilled that he'd come out of the pack as a surprise guy and won this thing and blew everybody away. He drove home and later that afternoon after a quick nap, he rode an easy 40 and then ran an easy five miles on the on the day of his great victory. So um, it, it actually is a big deal. And you know what? Um, speaking of the previous podcast, when we got into the central governor theory and those emotional highs, one thing that I benefited from when stacking those workouts was guess what? I knew three or four days of R&R were coming up. And so it was much easier for me to be in that mindset of pushing myself and getting the getting the job done when it was time. Yeah, as long as you recognize that you were going to, you you were going to rest, that you were going to get that R and R, and you weren't tempted to go out and 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 do more. Right. There's a little bit of uh, intuition involved too, where you, you make a distinction between just behaving by your instinct. And a lot of runners say or athletes say, I just train how I feel. If I feel good, I go out, and if I if I don't, I rest. But that's not the whole picture, is it? Oh, no. Uh, you have to use a lot of the um, uh, objective uh, markers as well, whether it's heart rate variability, uh, resting pulse, your, your body weight, how much sleep you got the night before, things like that all factor in. Or if, if you, you know, report that you did that uh, uh, post-race workout and then all your friends say, dude, you're an idiot. How did you, why did you do that on the same day? And you can process that and go, maybe they're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, we talked about Oh, the experience of the elite athletes and all this. But how about the average guy thinking about a concept like this? I mean, it's um, it's it's a legitimate choice, and these are all choices. And there's no right or wrong answer in how you train, because in some regards, any amount of, of physical activity that raises your metabolic rate will have an effect on the body. And we just sort of want to sort of pick and choose those effects that we want to generate. And which is why, if you want to be fast at at running ten uh, k's. You want to do some over-distance work and you want to do some sprints on the track, but you don't necessarily want to be doing bench press. Even though you're, you know, you're stressing your body, it has no application to the event that you're training for. So we want to specifically train for the events that we want to compete in. Certainly, I want to give the impression that everybody should have sort of an all-around fitness, but the reality is if you're training for 10K, you want to sort of gear your, your training toward racing that 10K at the best possible level that you can perform given the amount of, of time you're allocating to it. So these are all just choices about how to, you know, how to pick your workouts strategically, where to fit the workouts in. And what we've learned over the decades is that you don't really need that many key workouts, that many breakthrough workouts to get to the next level in order to continuously improve uh, your performance. And then the good news is that once you get to a new high level, it doesn't take that much to maintain it. 
We used to say in the old days that it takes it only takes 40% of the effort to maintain a new level once you've achieved that level. But you have to use 100% of effort to get to the next plateau. Right. Um, that's not just conjecture either. I mean, Dr. David Costell, Ball State, one of the big exercise physiologist guys, has done tapering studies, which the results are shocking of how how little training they can do and maintain 100% of fitness. Yeah. And just another point that we were talking about before the podcast was that there was a, these objective levels of fitness that an athlete would look at uh, before going into a contest, you know, strength, endurance, blood volume, uh, resting heart rate, um, glycogen storage, and all of the all of these markers, particularly for an endurance contest. And and one of the things that drops as you rest over a week and taper is blood volume. And and yet, as an athlete, you want to you want that blood volume to be maximized, particularly as an endurance athlete, so you can deliver more oxygen to the muscles. And so, one of the techniques that a lot of athletes used to use was even though they're tapering the day before a major contest they would do some brief sprints, and the sprints would have the effect of increasing blood volume overnight. So even for a casual enthusiast, I was talking to a friend of mine who does a lot of business travel and was lamenting that he's falling off schedule uh, because of all the traveling or feeling tired. Perhaps you could consider stacking up hard workouts on the weekend and then going into this busy time and doing a, a few minutes of sprinting to maintain all those gains as well as get the rest during a five-day uh, work week cycle. Yeah, that's a great strategy for people who are busy and have a, a lot of other things going on in their lives is to just pick the days that you're going to do the workouts. And if, if it's weekends, then, then that's great. And stack hard workouts on the weekends. I used to train people for uh, uh, ultra races, um, you know, anything 50K and over. And my favorite strategy was say you're going to basically ride, excuse me, you're going to run long all day, you know, all day Saturday and all day Sunday. You can put 100 miles in in those two days and then basically seven miles from Monday through Friday. And it worked for a lot of people. Wow. Uh, Here's another performance-related question written in from Kylie in San Luis Obispo. We also read about the benefits of fasting in conjunction with intense exercise to optimize the flow of adaptive hormones in the bloodstream after workout. You've talked about that at length at previous podcasts, Mark. Uh, but Kylie writes, what about recovering from the workout and refueling? What is the balance point between enjoying the enhanced flow of adaptive hormones in the bloodstream and the need to refuel post-workout, including carbs with insulin release if that workout was glycolytic? Well, so especially carbs. It really, This really is all about a choice to... Uh, refuel with carbohydrates right after a workout versus what I do typically, which is to not eat after a workout and to maximize that hormonal input. So we've talked about this before, but I'll reiterate, uh, as an endurance athlete and and as a glycolytic athlete, you have a couple of choices, one of which is to say, well, if I'm going to train hard every single day and I'm going to be doing glycolytic activity every single day or maybe even four or five days a week, Um, then I need to replenish glycogen reserves after the workout I did today by some amount of carbohydrate intake within the next few hours. Um, And of course, we talk about this window of opportunity where the body uh, seems to like that first 45 minutes to an hour after exercise, immediately post-exercise, for maximizing glycogen resynthesis in the muscles. So that's the old school strategy of 
taking in a carbohydrate, typically it's a 10% protein, 90% carbohydrate, or maybe even 20% protein, 80% carbohydrate drink right after a workout to maximize glycogen resynthesis. Now that's a, that's a choice, and I don't do that because that also tends to blunt the growth hormone and the testosterone pulse post-workout. So because, it, and how does it blunt it? It blunts it because taking in that amount of carbohydrate right after a workout will spike insulin, and insulin tends to blunt those, both of those hormones. So you, it's not a right or wrong answer. It's not, it's not good or bad. There's just a choice here. Do I want to maximize my glycogen with the idea that I'm going to probably go out and do this again tomorrow hard, or do I want to maximize the, the hormonal effects of this workout and have a, a, a slightly longer term muscle strength, muscle building uh, phenomenon as a result of this workout with the understanding that I, that I don't want to go hard tomorrow, that I'm choosing to only do hard workouts once or twice, maybe three times a week. And if I separate those days by a few days of uh, maybe one hard day followed by two easy days, then I don't need to replenish glycogen because I'm not going to be using the glycogen. I'm not going to be going glycolytic again hard. I'm going to be maximizing my fat burning. I'm going to be becoming better at, at utilizing fats and ketones in those two easy days that follow the hard day. And bear in mind also that the body doesn't necessarily require a lot of carbohydrate to resynthesize glycogen in the liver and the muscles. That'll happen through glyconeogenesis automatically, even on a low-carb eating strategy. So again, as long as you are not choosing to go hard and glycolytically every single day, you don't really need to replenish glycogen reserves. That's just now, if you do go hard every day and you don't replenish glycogen reserves, then you'll hit the wall, and then then we'll have a, you know, then we'll have another issue. We'll have to talk about it'll just it'll slap you upside the head pretty hard. Um, anyone who's bonked knows that. So, in the example that we just discussed with stacking those hard workouts, sure, maybe you should try to refeed during that period of time so you'll definitely be good to go the next day, and then um, taper off when your when your training tapers off. And also regarding that, uh, when, when Kylie wrote, what's the balance point, we engaged back and forth a little on email, and you just said offline, perhaps when you get hungry is a good idea when, when to eat. You know, how long should I wait to get my hormones going after the workout? That's always a good indicator. I mean, I, I, it, it blows my mind that I can play two hours of ultimate in the heat, um, and I do typically have a glass of uh, primal fuel 45 minutes before that workout. That's the only meal I have that morning. So I'll get up in the morning, I'll have a cup of coffee. We play at 10.30 and we play, we start at 10.30, we play to one. So there's a, a half hour warm up and, and choosing teams. And then we play two hours from 11 to one. And um, so I'll have the cup of coffee early in the morning, uh, about 45 minutes before the event or the <laughs> the, uh, the games. Um, I'll have- uh, uh, Welcome to the games. Uh, I'll have 190 calories max of primal fuel just to kind of prime the pump it's a it's a you know it's a high fat moderate uh, protein low carb meal replacement and then i won't eat again until typically an hour after i get home from the game and and largely because i know the effects that i'm trying to generate i've been sprinting for two hours and i want those those hormonal uh, impacts and then i'm not hungry and then that's the real indicator is that i don't it, it's sometimes it's really interesting. It's almost scary, except that I know better. Uh, but it's interesting that I don't even—I'm not even hungry for a while after those events. And then about two o'clock in the afternoon, I'll have a 
Um, you know, what I had this, uh, this last Sunday was just a, a bowl of scrambled eggs and some avocado and some cheese. And it was great. It was all I needed. Well, like we talked about in the sprinting podcast, your appetite is kind of dulled for a while because your body temperature is high and you've been working so hard. And then you just um, ease right back into regular eating pattern rather than uh, the chronic guy who's doing that bike ride that's a little too hard many, many days of the week and comes back and tears apart the pantry. So if you're coming home from workouts, tearing apart the pantry within seven minutes of arrival, you might want to check your strategy. Well, also, it, it also is indicating that you're not that great at burning fat. So if all you're doing is burning glucose, glycogen, you know, carbohydrates day in and day out in your workouts and everything else you're doing that involves any amount of intense activity, you have not fat adapted appropriately and you haven't become keto adapted. That's really the difference. So people who do come home from a, a hard workout like that and are ravenous uh, are people who have not only depleted their glycogen, they have not become very good at burning fat. So the brain is like, doesn't know what to do. It's, 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 it's the central governor telling the body, go to the pantry and start scarfing down carbohydrates. Uh, that's back to day one of, of the primal blueprint Everything we do, a 21-day total body transformation, this is about converting your old carbohydrate sugar-burning paradigm into the new fat-burning beast paradigm. Let's listen to a question from Laura. And shout out to Brock, our podcast audio engineer, who's done a great job up there in Canada putting all these shows together. Hi, Mark. My name is Laura Santagata, and I had a question about reaching ketosis. My question is, based on your last podcast, you made a comment that it's very hard to stay in ketosis because you like to enjoy a bowl of berries and eat some vegetables every once in a while. I assumed by that comment that you meant whenever you eat fruits and veggies, it takes you out of ketosis. So my question is, I do want to lose the last stubborn five pounds that I'm hanging on to, and I eat a ton of vegetables, very little fruit. Is, are the vegetables causing this problem the last five pounds? And should I try to go a couple weeks only eating protein and fat? Thank you. Well, yeah, so that's a very um, open-ended question because there are a lot of variables that we need to look at uh, when we get to those last five pounds. First variable is, you know, what does that mean to, to you to lose the last five pounds? Most Women that I know are thinking their in their you know in their mind. I could always stand to lose another five pounds, and then most guys go, "What are you talking about? You don't you, you know you're perfect the way you are." So the last five pounds. Um, sometimes, if you if you want to try the experiment of getting into ketosis and doing that and staying in ketosis for any uh, length of time more than a couple of days, it might be that uh, a large amount of vegetables could maybe take you out of ketosis. Some people can stay in ketosis taking in 75 or 80 grams of carbs a day. Uh, and that I would probably count myself as one of those people who can do that because I've trained to do this for so long. I don't, um, and I spread the intake of those uh, carbs out. They're fibrous carbs. They're, you know, in the vegetables so they, they don't present a large bolus of carbohydrate at any one time. So I don't imagine that I take myself out of ketosis doing that. But then, uh, you know, the large bowl of berries may, may have that impact. Timing is, is, is critical to this too, because if I were to have, uh, based on the last question or one prior to that, on re resynthesizing glycogen, if I were to have a large bowl of berries right after a workout, 
Um, I doubt that I would take myself out of ketosis because a lot of those berries would go into uh, glycogen storage almost immediately. They, they wouldn't raise uh, insulin. They wouldn't raise blood sugar. Um, they'd go straight to liver and, and be um, converted into glycogen. There are a lot of, um, I, there are so many variables in this particular instance. So back to Laura and her particular case, if you want to try staying below 30 grams total of carbohydrates a day for five or six days uh, and see what happens provided you're taking in sufficient amounts of, of fat and provided you're not overdoing the protein. The protein can be overdone in some cases if you're a woman and you're taking in more than 120 grams a day. That would be that might be sufficient to raise insulin, uh, which in turn shuts off ketosis. So you want to watch the protein intake almost as aggressively as you watch the carbohydrate intake in that instance. And then ultimately to lose the last five pounds, look, the reality is we have to create a caloric deficit. Uh, we talk a lot about the notion that when you're primal or paleo, you don't have to count calories. But if you're getting really down to the nitty gritty and you say, look, there's a some, some changes I want to make. I've plateaued. I haven't gotten to the level I need to get at yet. The first thing I'd say is, okay, if you've become good at burning fat, if you've become fat adapted and keto adapted and you want to get into ketosis, then when you do cut back on the total amount of calories you take in, the body has no choice but to go seek those calories from your stored body fat. And that's how you burn off those last five pounds. You mentioned something important I want to emphasize that you have to watch your protein intake too because I've, I've spoken to a couple people just in recent weeks lauding the benefits of primal, that primal stuff's great. I, I, I've lost weight on my low-carb, high-protein diet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't need to be a high-protein diet. First of all, it's a, you know, an, an eating strategy. It's a lifestyle. It's not really a diet. But there is that uh, tendency in a lot of cases to overdo the protein. And I've been guilty of that myself. In the first couple of years of my being primal, I was under the assumption I needed a lot more protein than it turns out I actually need. There is the reality that the body can't really process more than 30, maybe 35 grams of protein at any one meal. And so if you're somebody who only eats a couple of meals a day, like I do, uh, that means that you really only need you know, I only need 80, 90, maybe 110 grams of protein a day to maintain muscle mass and energy and maintain my body weight. Um, and I'm a hard gainer, so I'm, I'm not looking to lose. I'm looking to maintain mass. And as I get older, you know, that's the, that's the bane of uh, the senior's existence is this sarcopenia, this loss of muscle mass. So I plan my workouts strategically so that um, when I do work out, I work out hard, but I rest in between. And so with that in mind, I can't do more than two hard, full-body resistance workouts a week. And in many cases, uh, three days in between isn't enough time to recover. So sometimes I have to take four days in between to fully recover and be prepared to do the next one. That's the good news. So two of these hard workouts a week is all I need, and it's really all I can handle. If I did any more, I might even jeopardize the muscle mass. But the other part of that equation is I don't need that much protein to maintain that muscle mass because I'm not uh, cannibalizing the muscle tissue by ch overtraining, you know? So there's, there, that's part of the balance that we have to find is this, this line where we're working hard enough to maintain muscle mass, but not too hard or so hard that we're cannibalizing or catabolizing, breaking down muscle tissue. Um, and when we do find that line, we realize that we don't need that much protein to maintain muscle mass. 
And I'm, you know, if, if you want to have 120, 140 grams a day and you're a guy, that's fine. I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm okay with that. But if you're trying to lose weight and you're trying to mitigate this insulin response, understand that insulin does respond to a high protein intake the same way, it res- not the same way, but almost the same way it responds to a high carb intake. When you recognize that it's insulin that literally turns off ketosis, then that's really your main driver is how do I keep my insulin levels low enough so that my keto- I stay in ketosis and burn those ketones and metabolize that fat. So if you're following some crazy plan that's calling for low carb and a ton of protein intake, you're going to get rid of that excess protein through gluconeogenesis, you might as well have eaten the carbs, right? Oh, that's part of it, yeah. And yeah. It, it, exactly, exactly. Um, do you have any signs that you use to track whether you're under or over proteined? I don't anymore. I mean, my whole existence is based around now uh, an intuitive ability to know where I stand with my health. This is, uh, you know, I talk about in life, you, you meet people, some people just know how to make money and everything they do turns to gold. And you go, wow, man, how do you, how, how do you do that? Where does that come from? And they'll basically say a lot of times it's intuitive. And yet those same people, many of those same people cannot lose weight. They are in poor health. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to health. Now, conversely, there are people who, who just know exactly what to do about how to be healthy. And it's intuitive. They don't think about it. They do it. It seems to work. Uh, they spend a, a lifetime being you know, uh, fit and happy and healthy, but they have no money. And they go, well, uh, wait a minute. How? So, so they're like, okay, I, I intuitively know how to feel good and look good. I just don't know how to do anything in business. And it's rare that you can get the two you know, sides to, to work together. So my goal for most people is to develop this intuitive skill where I, because I feel very good about my intuition about how much training I have to do and what I need to eat and when I need to eat and, you know, what I uh, should avoid. I mean, I've, I've developed such a, a fine ability that I don't even have to think about it. So I don't really count calories. I don't count macronutrients anymore. I'm aware because I'm, I'm doing the research. I want to develop that skill in all of my readers and all of my listeners. How can I, how can I impart my wisdom to you uh, so that you can become that lean, strong, fit, happy, healthy, productive human being you want to be without agonizing over it, without feeling guilty of every, of every wrong choice you make, without having to overthink and overthink and develop an eating disorder or orthorexia because you've tried so hard to, to overthink this when, in fact, it works best when you don't think about it, and it's all intuitive. Well, some of the most memorable uh, things you've said about those choices and whether or not you want to enjoy your ice cream treat is that you go there, you enjoy the ice cream treat, and then you take notice, and this is for me personally, I used to love ice cream and pound that whole pint down, or Ben and Jerry's, whatever. But then if you really sit back and take notice what's going on for the next three hours, and how it affects your sleep or your stomach and all those things, then you start to, to dial into the idea that was that really worth it because I'm feeling uncomfortable now in these, in these four different ways. You know, when I was a teenager, um, I got, well, not a teenager, when I was in college, um, I got really, really, really drunk at a party one night. And I was so sick and threw up so much and I was so miserable the next day that I, I said to myself, you know, I just don't want to do this again. So I, I never, I literally never got drunk, certainly to that point, ever again, because I recognized 
the folly of it. And even though I had a great time at the party that night, and it was you know pleasurable up until the point where the room started spinning, it dialed me in to the choices I was making and gave me the ability to not choose to do that again. So when it comes to food choices, I ask people quite often, okay, if you're confronted with this giant piece of chocolate, lava, lava, triple chocolate cake, or whatever it is, um, just ask yourself the, the following question. Is the next three minutes of gustatory pleasure worth what I know will be five hours of sort of misery of going to bed and not being able to sleep and, and sweating a little bit profusely and having my insulin spike and then drop down and, and, and having my blood sugar uh, go through these cycles to where I'm secreting cortisol and all the, all the negative things that we know will happen biochemically as a result of this food that we take in and hormonally, it becomes a pretty easy choice for a lot of people to say, you know what, I'll just have one bite. And I, you know, I, I know my limitations. With one bite, I'll be fine. With six bites, I'm over the edge and it's going to be, it, there's going to be hell to pay. That's the kind of intuitive skill that I want people to, to adapt. Yeah, and speaking of uh, feeling lousy after the ice cream or the treat that you doesn't agree with your body, um, I think there's a lot of people that have no reference point because they've never tried a 21-day exclusion. And, and on the Leaky Gut podcast and in the Solving Leaky Gut product, they talk in detail about um, that you, you need to know what it feels like to eliminate these toxins from your diet for a few weeks. Then you have a nice reference point where, oh, I don't get gas and bloating after meals every single time. And so until they do that, then they, they don't really realize. It's kind of the good news, bad news of the primal blueprint and any paleo eating strategy, which is that um, the good news is that you've cleaned yourself up. Uh, you're starting to notice the changes. The bad news is if you go back to the way you eat, you, you used to eat, uh, you'll notice really um, amazing uh, and sometimes painful changes in your body as a result of those bites of food that you've eaten. The, the human body has a tendency to want to, to mask the pain. So, you know, over, over time, we develop a, a, an acclimation to things that are hurting us. Because if you just had to live with that same pain of the initial assault, we, you know, we'd kill ourselves. It just wouldn't. So the body wants, it wants to subdue the pain in any way it, it feels possible. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, there are a lot of things that are going on in your body that, that would be painful if you were aware of them, but because of a lifetime of the eating choices and, the, and the lack of exercise and whatever choices you've made, the body has become immune to the sensations and has, uh, it will not hear the signals from the pain receptors anymore. Even though you're doing damage to yourself on a daily basis, the body wants to subdue that pain. It wants to not hear the signals anymore. It's, it's, it manifests itself in various and sundry ways. Um, certainly insulin resistance is, is one of those ways, but the other way is just you just don't have the sensations anymore. So you eat the crappy food. Um, if you're a person who's gluten intolerant, um, you may not even have to be celiac, but you may have problems with gluten that over time, uh, even though they're causing damage, your body doesn't feel them or doesn't, doesn't send those signals to your brain with the same intensity that, that it used to. Because that's the body's job is to say, look, I, I just got to get through this life as pain-free as I possibly can get. So now, when you clean your act up and you eliminate those foods on a 21-day total body transformation program or on a Whole30 or on any, any number of these strategies that have been put out there by Rob Wolf and Dallas and Melissa and myself, when you eliminate all of those 
those bad foods, you avoid the poisonous things, and you clean your act up and you start the healing process, you regain the sensitivity. That's, that's the good news, bad news. So now you've become healthier, you've started to heal the stuff, you've started to uh, upregulate some of those signaling systems. So now when you go have that giant piece of gluten-filled bread, now the pain is much more intense than it had been just prior to your embarking on this program because now you've, you've, you've reaccustomed the body to that noise and that signal and the pain and the bloating and, and all of the biochemical manifestations are they, they feel like they're exaggerated when in fact they're just you're just hearing them more well, like a smoker i guess and they they, they stop smoking for 10 years light up one and uh, they're going to be coughing and hacking just like just like anybody else yeah interesting what about a um a chronic cardio athlete you think that'd be the same category like they don't notice the sensations that they're they're fried and, and they have brain fog every day because they're training too hard because they're so used to training too hard that's that's the best example i can give you is that the endorphin rush that is produced by training hard lasts into the next day. And then you re... I, I, I would suggest that people who are really into the chronic cardio are, are chasing a high as aggressively as a heroin addict chases a high. It's a, it's a biochemical signal. And, of course, endorphins are feel-good hormones that uh, dull the pain. Uh, they dull the pain. They're so good at dulling the pain, they actually feel good. So now you engage in a painful activity so that you can generate uh, endogenous hormones that dull the pain and make you feel better. That's the runner's high. And it's, it's the best example of the body wanting to do whatever it can to mask the pain. So the endorphins that are, that are produced in a runner's high are the body's way of saying, we don't like the pain so we're going to create this hormone that dulls the pain. You go, well, why would the body do that? Well, in the case of a survival situation, mm -hmm. my suggestion is that endorphins evolved so that an animal that was being chased down by another animal wouldn't just, after it got tired, wouldn't just give up like a deer in the headlights and say, okay, you got me, but would have the, the motivation and the will and, and feel uh, good enough about life to keep going as long as it could keep going. That was, uh, in, I, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see if there's some science that can back that up. But my theory about uh, endorphins is just that, that it was a survival mechanism. Makes a lot of sense, even in comfortable modern life. So we have hit the questions pretty hard today. We still have plenty more for a future podcast in between some of these wonderful guests and other great podcast topics that are coming up. So thanks for spending the time with us today, Mark. Brad Kearns, your host, signing off for the Primal Blueprint podcast with Mark Sisson. Until next time. Hey, the first ever Primal Con New York is coming up soon on June 5th through 8th at the amazing Mohonk Mountain House. For details, visit primalblueprint.com and look for the Primal Con link where you can learn all about Primal Con, the bios and videos from the presenters involved, and also a daily agenda of what you can expect at this amazing life-changing event.